0: Welcome to Album Clash, the podcast in which we take two albums that share a connection and put them against each other inside the. Ring. Ring of your death. Two albums enter, only one may leave. Metaphoric. This is Album Clash. Good evening, everyone. I am Tim. And I am Kev. And this is Album Clash. Uh, So if anyone listened to our brief trailer, this is going to be a podcast where we talk nonsense about music that we like, or even about music that we don't like, and uh, just compare two albums with each other. Um, what What we want to say is that neither of us are
1: journalists, neither of us, well, Tim plays a bit of music. I have no musical ability whatsoever, so I am merely coming at it as a punter and a general idiot.
0: Yeah, neither of us is a professional musician. As Kev says, I am an extremely amateur musician, and we are just two people that like (laughs) music. So please don't get annoyed if we don't agree with your views. I mean, the thing is as well, music is very subjective. So if you like things that we don't, that's absolutely fine. Uh, It's just for a bit of a laugh, really. So that said, let's get into the first episode. So... Kevin, okay. Why don't you take people through again which two albums we are putting into the Ring of Death? So,
1: entering the Ring of
0: Death is Derek and the Dominos' "Layla"
1: and other love songs, which we'll be playing. George Harrison's seminal "All Things Must Pass." What's the connection between those two? So, there are myriad connections between the two. So, Derek and the Dominos actually formed out formed from the sessions for "All Things Must Pass" because they all played on it. There are also links between, and we will probably go into some detail on it uh, between Derek and Domino. Well, Layla and Other Other Love Songs is basically an album dedicated to George Harrison's wife uh, by Eric Clapton, who had a at the at the point of recording. I believe it was an unrequited um, love for
0: uh, Patty Boyd. That's correct. That is that is exactly right, and and we will get into that because. Yeah, uh, like most of the album is written about Patty Boyd, and the songs which aren't written about Patty Boyd are covers. <laughs> and the
1: covers that are chosen are basically saying the
0: same thing. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, quite. I mean, nowadays that's the sort of thing that would get you a training order. Um, for Eric Clapton, it got him a wife. That wife being Patty Boyd, George Harrison's ex-wife. <laughs> Um, i mean the mad thing about it is that harrison turns up at the wedding so that was one of my that's one of my facts i've got exactly that george harrison attended the wedding with (laughs) paul and ringo and was basically stayed friends with clapton for years uh so we will do the albums chronologically now both of these albums were released in november 1970 Layla and other love songs preceded all things must pass by two whole weeks. So Layla and other love songs were released on 9th of November and all things must pass on the 26th of November. So we will start with Layla. Now, before we go into the detail of the album, we need to address the elephants in the room regard. In fact, the elephants in the room regards (laughs) Mr. Clapton. There are some problematic things in his past and in fact, in his present. Um, Do you know what I'm talking about? I'm sure you do. I know exactly what you're talking about. In
1: fact, um, I I do, I do have some point like Layla and other love songs is going to lose points because there are some terrible people who play on the album. So there is um, Eric Clapton and we, I will go into it. And in fact, quote, quote from him on, on stage. So Eric Clapton in 1974 at a gig in Birmingham said, uh, listen to me, man. 1976. I, I stand corrected. Listen to me, man. I think we should vote for Enoch Powell. That's his opener. Yeah. I mean, it gets, pe- it gets people's attention. It, I mean, You've got to give yeah. him
0: some credit for that.
1: I, I think Enoch's right. I think we should send them all back. Stop Britain from becoming a black colony. Get the foreigners out. Then there's various um, racial epithets that he uses.
0: Yeah, let, let's 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 not use the horrible racial slurs, but uh, they were used. Um, keep Britain white.
1: I used to be into dope. Now I'm into racism. I mean, like he's got bang into racism there. Like
0: he he is he has nailed his colours to the racism badge. Uh, so uh, so as you said, that that is that is you know quoted from people who were at said concert, and Clapton has never denied it. Well, Clapton. So, in a
1: in a twenty eighteen interview with the Daily Mail before uh, the release of a documentary about him, um, he he did address address the comments in some shape. <laughs> Go on. What did he say? Um, so he said, um, "I was so ashamed of who I was. I was a kind of semi racist." Now, I, I have an issue with that because. <laughs> based on that on that statement he, he wasn't a semi racist yeah. he was a full on racist like he he as we said he nailed his colors to the mass. and i mean i think this is my fa- my favorite um part of the quote because this is this is the i know well, what i this can't is. be ra- i can't be racist because because my, i've got a black friend so he he then he then goes on to say which didn't make sense half of my friends were black i dated a black woman and i championed black music <laughs> I mean some
0: I don't know which I don't know which of those three things is the best. They just sort of you know each one comes after the other and escalates things. (laughs) And and I know there are
1: people who will who will say championed, stole,
0: appropriated. Yes, (laughs) definitely (laughs) appropriated. Now, so I said and in his presence. So will you allow me to take you through in in December of last year? So for anyone. (laughs) For anyone listening in the future, we are speaking to you from the COVID times. So we're currently in the middle of the third national lockdown in the UK. So in December of 2020, at a time when infections uh, and unfortunately hospitalizations and everything that comes with that within the UK were escalating at an alarming rate, Um, (laughs) Eric Clapton and his good friend, Van Morrison, released a track called Stand and Deliver, which had been written by uh, Morrison, basically speaking out against lockdowns. And could I read you some of the lyrics from this seminal work? Oh yes, please. Okay, so these are just selections from the verses. Magna Carta, Bill of Rights. The Constitution, what's it worth? You know they're gonna grind us down until it really hurts moving on is this a sovereign nation or just a police state you better look out people before it gets too late and then i'd just like to leave us with the final lyrics to to close the track stand and deliver stand and deliver (laughs) dick turpin wore a mask too wow I mean, I think we can all agree it's it's moving, and I think there's there's something there for everyone to enjoy. I mean, I
1: know it has been said elsewhere by other people, but Van Morrison obviously is from Northern Ireland, had absolutely fuck all to say about the Troubles for thirty years, but ask him to stick a mask on when he's going into the local Aldi, and he's he's recording, he's protesting, he's doing all kinds of things. Uh,
0: exactly. I mean, it's it, quite remarkable, and um. Sadly, as we'll see in future episodes of the show, there aren't, these are not the only prominent musicians within the UK who are, let, let us say, sceptical about the Rona. So, uh, yeah, as you said, when we come to uh, pick these albums against each other, Clapton's going to lose some points for, well, you know, all that stuff
1: well and to trail for a song later on in this album there is also an another fella who is questionable in his conduct we'll we'll get but we'll get to that
0: okay right without further ado let's begin album clash right Layla and other love songs so just some basic facts before we start going into it i mean the one thing i would say first is for our first episode we've picked two long old albums oh god yeah um <laughs> They are both hefty albums. Oh, they are. As we've said before, Layla and Other Love Songs was released in November 1970. It's the only studio album that Derek and the Dominoes released. So Derek and the Dominoes comprise Clapton himself, obviously, on vocals and guitar. Bobby Whitlock, who played keyboards and also co-wrote most of the songs with Clapton and sang um, on, on many of those. Jim Gordon was the drummer. Carl Radle was the bassist. And um, the uh, session musician, to end all session musicians, Dwayne Allman, played mostly slide guitar on 11 of, of the tracks. So do you know how Allman came to be involved in the recording of this album? I do not. So the album was recorded in Miami at Criteria Studios in Miami, and the producer of the album... Tom Dowd, he had also been a long-time producer of the Allman Brothers music. So when he uh, was in town with the band recording the album, he took Clapton to see an Allman Brothers, uh, they were playing a benefit gig in, in town. And uh, Clapton's remark was, he really wanted to see the guy that played guitar on Wilson Pickett's cover of Hey Jude. And can we Can we just take a second there to
1: to say if you have not heard Wilson Pickett's cover of Hey Jude, go and listen to it because it is absolutely amazing.
0: It is indeed amazing. Very much seconded, yes. Go and listen to it now. Stop this podcast for the next five minutes and go and listen to that But please come back and listen. Yeah, well, welcome back. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, they went to the gig. Clapton uh, met up with Allman um, after the gig. Uh, they got to talking. Clapton's actually described ormond as the musical brother he never had. Not sure whether ormond shared all of the same views as as, as Clapton, <laughs> um, but uh, basically said, "Come down the studio and, and start jamming." Uh, as it was, as I said, orman went on to to collaborate on eleven of the fourteen tracks on the album. And
1: yes, you can you can you can hear his his um, influence
0: all across the album, very much so. And that is. I'm going to say it now, a good thing. So the album itself, nine of the songs are original, um, six of which were co-written, as I said, by Whitlock and Clapton. There are five covers on there, which obviously we'll, we'll get into. Now, as we've said, most of the songs were written about Patty Boyd. And th- those that weren't in the covers were very much um, inspired by her anyway and selected because they're on the same theme. Generally, the theme of unrequited love, Lovers getting into arguments, relationships ending—you know all that, all that lovely stuff. So the artwork is—it's a painting of uh, a young lady with blonde hair, holding some flowers. Now it's a painting by a, a French artist called Francon de Schoenberg, or Schonberg, I should say, and it's called uh, La Fille au Bouquet. Clapton was staying at the artist's house with the artist's son. Well, the band were, not just Clapton. The band was staying at the artist's house with with, with his son, Uh, went to the art studio, Clapton saw the picture, and he was struck by um, its resemblance to uh, the wife of his best friend. So let's get into the music, shall we? Okay. Well, firstly, what was your introduction to this album? How did you first hear it how did you first get into it um i think
1: it was essentially getting into into blue like uh, there was a few years ago when it got bang into blues and your gateway into into blues is is obviously essentially white fellas covering it and (laughs) um and i me, me dad had always loved cream um, so I'd, I and had always loved Clapton. So, but for some reason, he never had Layla as an album in the household. But I had I had heard Layla, and I was always intrigued by the song. And so, just through trying to discover more about blues and that sort of genre, like I came across I came across the album, and I was like, as soon as I, as soon as I started listening to it, it was like, yeah, I, I
0: I I am enjoying this jam. So for me, it was uh, it was when I was. When I was in school, I was I was I don't know, thirteen, fourteen. So the first band that I played in in school, I was I was bass player at the time. The the lead guitarist and and singer for the band, it was bang into Clapton, um, massively into Clapton. And he introduced me to to Clapton and and and, and this this album as a result. So you said you said about your dad not having a copy of the album. it actually never charted in this country until i think it was 2001 it did not enter and even then it was only entered at number 68 it did not chart in the uk it 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 didn't perform well no um, commercially no so yeah for me it was it was you know quite quite a time quite a while ago when i first when i first touched on the album but then um sort of hadn't listened to it for ages until uh actually i i', I managed to get hold of a of a vinyl copy a, a year or two ago and uh have listened to it quite a lot since then although i'm gonna have to make a, an
1: honest confession here um i was going to talk about it when we got to uh, layla which obviously were we can talk about its cultural significance and uh what it's been used in and i would love to say that uh, being a Cinéast and loving loving film, and that the I, I can reference uh, the the specific scene in Goodfellas, and that's how I came came into the song. But that would be a lie. <laughs> the 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 way that my first experience with Layla came from the Vauxhall once driven, forever smitten ads. <laughs> I'm so glad you've said that. And so essentially, my my introduction to, to Layla as a song came from a
0: shitty advert for a for a Vauxhall astra. Okay. So uh, the opener is I Looked Away. Guess who this is written about, Kev?
1: I, I have no idea. I mean, I, I did when when making my notes after listening to, to the album. So I, I made a note of the of the line to love another man's woman, baby. I guess I'll keep on sinning. <laughs> I mean, do you think
0: George had any idea when he heard it's this the, album? It's the fucking opener.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he's he's not even subtly built up to it. Like he's bang in straight on. Like basically, I want to buff your wife.
0: <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so. so have you ever written a song or a uh, poem or or anything about an unrequited love? Um,
1: I, I can I can say I have not, but that's because I do not have the uh, the tools with which to create such a thing. However, you know, if I was after my best mate's wife, um, I probably I probably wouldn't commit it to to recording <laughs> and then performing round the world.
0: <laughs> well, that, that's fair. So I did once write a song about someone. Uh, again, this is when I it was. was it, it was the first song I ever wrote. Actually, it was when I was in school, and um, it was a girl I was I was I was besotted with, and uh, she had no no interest in me whatsoever. <laughs> we were on speaking terms. Uh, that's probably the best I can say. Um and then uh, there was like a, every. So often there'd be, um, you know, like school concerts and evenings and stuff, where you know you'd get, you'd get the school choir singing stuff and and whatever, and and my band would go and play one or two songs. Uh, and there was one where I, I, I was playing, uh, I was playing a couple of songs. One was a cover, and one was this song I'd written. And like none of the students ever turn up to these things because they just, you know, they weren't very interesting. Anyway, so just before the show. I'm uh, sort of, you know, just looking through the the curtain and stuff. And she fucking turns up, doesn't see. And I'm absolutely (laughs) shitting myself from this point going, oh, my God, I'm about to lay my soul bare in front of the woman I'm in love with and my parents. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh dear! Um, in Shropshire, <laughs> in rural Shropshire, home of the modern Olympic Games. <laughs> do your research, go on Wikipedia. It's true. Uh, so, yeah. And we um, went all right, actually. The performance went all right. And at, at the at the end of the performance, she came back stage. She gave me a little hug. And how do you reach your peak? <laughs> My creative peak <laughs> had certainly been reached. Um, so you know, in a way, I, I know exactly how Eric was feeling when he wrote this album. <laughs> <laughs> this is a perfectly serviceable opening track. I think that's that, that's all I've written. Yeah, it's instantly recognisably classic. Oh, off. very much so. The the the
1: musicality of the album is very consistent, and so the opener very much
0: sets sets the tone for the album. I would say definitely. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I would I, I agree. So track two, Bell Bottom Blues, I, again. Who's this ring about? Uh, yeah, basically it, the the title of the song came because um, when uh, Clapton told Boyd that he was going to America to record an album, she asked him to bring her back a pair of bell bottom jeans. So fortunately for for Clapton, she didn't ask for hot pants
1: because. <laughs> Hot Pants Blues doesn't really work as a title. <laughs> That's a very good point. But what I, can, what I can say about Bell Bottom Blues is that Dwayne Norman doesn't play on this. So Clapton does all the guitar parts and it nudely noodley-tastic. Um even if you don't particularly like the song, and um, which I actually do quite like it, but you have to recognise the technical skill and ability that goes into it.
0: Yeah, I, I agree. And and for me, this feels like the first. This feels like the proper opening of the album. It feels like the first epic track on there because of its length. I mean, it's six minutes, because of the solo, as you said, and uh, because of the proficiency. For me, this is uh, this is the true opening to the album. I would say. Did you know that Cher covered this song in 1975? What? <laughs> I've never heard the version. And but now I Cher... really want to. <laughs> yeah, <I know>. Yep. <laughs> but that's not for today. Um, so track three is uh, is uh, "Keep on Growing." Um, it's a nice change of pace. This quite a quite a funky, upbeat blues riff to start the track. Uh, so apparently, according to Whitlock, in an interview with Song Facts in 2004, it's just started as a, as a jam. The, the group, obviously, Olman plays on this track as well. It started as a, as a jam, and uh, they liked the way it sounded. Um, and so they figured, well, let's stick some lyrics onto it. And again, according to Whitlock, uh, they went out and wrote them in 20 minutes in the lobby of, of Criteria Studios.
1: And I mean, you can you can tell, like particularly towards the end, that it came out of a jam because they're having a they're having a lovely old time on that. That's,
0: that is exactly
1: what I've written. The same thing. And I mean, like I I do really like the song. Um, and I know it's it's very cliched, but I wrote down. Um, I could imagine driving down a Californian highway with the roof down, listening to it. It feels it feels very. It has a very summery
0: vibe to it. Definitely, yeah, completely agree. Completely agree. Really good. Uh, And I say, it's one of the uh, the whole album, really. You've got to be into uh, just enjoying musicians uh, play with each other um, (laughs) in a musical sense. (laughs) Grow up (laughs) in a musical sense. (laughs) Oh, dear. (laughs) Moving swiftly on. Um, so this the vocals in this song are, are, are what's called a call and response. Did you note that? Yeah, um,
1: I, I, I think I've read something, or maybe it was related to another another one of the songs later on.
0: Um, they were going for like a Sam and Dave kind of call and response yeah, thing. exactly. And yeah, as you said, there's a couple of tracks on the album that are like that. Um, so uh, yeah, quite, quite nice, that. Track four, Nobody Knows You When You're Down and Out. Uh, so this is the first cover on the album. Uh, first recorded in 1923 by Jimmy Cox, uh, the most, I think, the most popular version, certainly before this album, if not, if not, you know, definitively is is a song, is a recording by Bessie Smith in 1929. Uh, not got a load to say about this track. Other than uh, it was the first track that Allman had recorded, you know, chronologically, not in terms of their order on the album, but it was the first one that Allman played with the band after he joined the sessions. Uh, And apparently it was recorded in one take, completely live. Yeah, um, it's it's perfect. It's perfectly
1: fine. It's as I say, it's it's a blue it's a blue standard they like Orman Ormond will have inevitably played this loads of times. Clapton has played it loads of times and Clapton's continued to play it in his live show. So, yeah. Yeah, it's per- it's perfectly it's perfectly good um, and ends the first side if we're going on the on the
0: vinyl. Yep. Um per- perfectly well. Yeah, agreed. And I think that it's a general thing in the album. A lot a lot of the album is is perfectly serviceable blues music um and and if you like that sort of thing then this album is very much for you full disclosure for me i i love i love dwayne ormond's guitar music in general and i think it comes through really clearly on this album um we've got to do some armor brothers uh, as this as this series progresses by the way um yeah i i i I really like dwayne ormond he's well and as as we've already um absolutely
1: extolled the virtues of his guitar playing on an entirely different song. And when we're just trying to talk about this album, um, yeah, we, I, I am a fan of the Allman brothers as well. Um, yeah. So we will, we will
0: talk more about Dwayne Allman. Yes. So track five, the opening of side B. So if you're on CD, it's track five. If you are on vinyl, it's, uh, on CD? No one listens to CDs anymore. Christ, if you're streaming, <laughs> it's, it's track five. If you're on vinyl, it's it's track one of side B.
1: If you're on cassette...
0: <laughs> <laughs> Cassettes are making a comeback. Start of side two. <laughs> <laughs> so I am yours. Um, so the lyrics for this track are mostly taken from a 7th century uh, poem by a Persian poet... Nizami, I really hope I've pronounced that correctly, uh, called The Story of Layla and Nanjun. Now, we'll be coming back to this poem again uh, in a later track. I wonder if you can guess which one it is. But basically, the, the, the main thing I've got on this is that so many of the lyrics to this track are taken from that poem that Nizami actually receives a songwriting credit on the song. And um, the, no- the note that
1: I made of it is that in, a, in what is a very blues heavy um album it's it's a it's quite a lovely step change. It's a it's a like from the from the like first the first side of the album coming on to the the second side it's like a palate yeah. cleanser and I, I I really like the it's it's still got I mean you can hear Dwayne Allman's slide all over all over it but it works so well and into one of the, the one of the things when we talk about the whole album the album as a whole i may have a criticism that it doesn't have enough of these palette cleansers of something a little bit different like when we get into side three and side four the it probably could do with maybe a little changing of the order to yeah balance it out a little bit
0: yeah i think you're right uh, and again as you say we'll get into that um but i think it's a it's a very good observation and as you say this does feel this does feel refreshingly different on the album track six any day um <laughs> right back to where we were another song about patty point <laughs> uh so uh, i don't have a great deal to say about this i mean one for musicians uh, the verse and the chorus are in different keys so the verse is um in a major and the chorus is in d major
1: um the the note that i made was Clapton and dwayne norman absolutely shredding all over it oh absolutely like, that, that 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 was the entirety of my notes on it. I have to have to admit, like they are they are just
0: noodling all over them. They are indeed. Okay, on to so the next track, uh, Key to the Highway, which is the last track on side B. This is the second cover on the album, Um, first recorded by Charlie Seeger in 1940 songwriting is actually credited to Seeger and uh, another blues uh, musician William Brunsey um both Seeger and bruzi played this song um, uh, and recorded versions around a similar time as, as it had been uh, something they'd played as they'd started out lyrically there's very little difference between the two and I think it's just one of those things with a lot of blues tracks where they they grow organically um you know, songs being being played around communities uh and growing up you know folk songs if you like growing up and growing organically uh, this song uh this track on the album uh is it's it, this is my sort of length nine minutes and 47 seconds now you're talking so uh, again i'm gonna i'm gonna have
1: to make um, a confession the garage band estate in me wants to hate it because it's nine minutes long and it's just multiple track and everything like that, I absolutely adore it. It's so good. Um, yeah, it's. I w- I would argue it's probably alongside the title track, it's probably what my favorite on the album. Um, you just you just lose yourself in it and you, the the musicality washes yeah. over you. you. Like you get in, you get about five minutes in, it's like, oh Christ, like <laughs> you've still got another
0: four minutes of 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 noodling going yeah. over it and and it's another for me it's another track where as you said earlier the duelling guitars uh, and different styles of, of clapton and ormond you know the slide guitar on this from great duane ormond is magnificent and with clapton say duelling with that it's just it's glorious i love it
1: i mean and uh, the song comes out of a jam they were pissing around in the studio and the producer came in heard it was like start recording that they, that's that's boss that. And that's what it is. It's just, it's just a big old jam. Yeah. And it's glorious. It's, it's the thing that you want from Dwayne Allman
0: and Eric Clapton playing on a record together. Absolutely. A hundred percent agree. Definitely. So the song itself, very in keeping with the theme of the album, it's about a traveling businessman who takes to the road after he's broken up with his lover. Side three. Um, Opens with uh, Tell the Truth, which is pr- mainly written by Whitlock. So Claps. it's it, it's credited to Whitlock and Clapton, but Clapton only contributed the final verse, uh, apparently. So this is uh, another link uh, between this and All Things Must Pass. The original version of this was recorded during the All Things Must Pass sessions and produced... Uh, by Phil Spector. Can you imagine how massive that would have sounded? Well, it was released as Derek and the Dominos' first single. The Phil Spector-produced version was released, and it's in September 1970. But as as they were putting the finishing touches to the album, basically Clapton and, and Whitlock came to the conclusion that it just it didn't and down I think, sorry, didn't it didn't gel with the sound that the band had become on the album. So they withdrew the single,
1: which which you can. <laughs> I mean, I've never heard the the Phil Spector produced version, but anyone who's listened to the the different versions of of Let It, Let it Be, Be. So, yeah. so the the Spector version versus the the stripped back version, I can imagine, like, it, the, yeah, the, it certainly wouldn't have fitted with the general aesthetic of the album. So I, I have realised we haven't actually said very much about Tell the Truth. In terms of in terms of the song, um, the only note that I really made on it was uh, the counterpoint between Clapton's playing and Dwayne Ullman's slide. Again, is very evident within within the song.
0: It, it is. So the other point I made is that this is the other call and response song on the album. So whereas whereas the previous track was alternate lines, this is alternate verses sung between Whitlock and uh, and Clapton. And actually, I I I, I do think their voices. They do work well with each other. Yeah, they do. Okay, so next track on side three is "Why Does Love Got to Be So Sad," and the only the only note I've written here is I love Dwayne Allman's really fast guitar solo on this track.
1: I mean the the note the note that I made was is this referring to something?
0: <laughs> I could not possibly comment. Uh, yeah,
1: you, 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 you. I mean, you you have to love the guitar solo in the middle because it's ridiculous. And it, 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 again, goes into a big, massive jam. It, it, is, it is a fantastic song. The, obviously, Patty Boy is is very much prominent in this. And basically, the, the next, the, the run of songs coming up are basically all about her. Yeah. The, I, did make, I did make a note here, though, that why does love got to be so sad? Whilst I, whilst I do enjoy the song... I asked. The, I wrote the notes and asking the question: Could the album have done with a stronger producer to rein it in a bit? Does it, do they? Because do, they sort like why does love got to be so sad? Does have at least about three solos in it? Could with a stronger producer? I mean, I'm not saying Phil Spector needed to be in the studio waving his gun around, but <laughs> if someone could have maybe. Clipped them back a little
0: bit. Why do I feel like I'm being transported back ten years to the other stage at Glastonbury in 2011, <laughs> when we're watching Queen to the Stone Age on a Sunday night, and you're suggesting that Josh Hom has played one too many guitar solos and Better Living Through Chemistry? But my my response now would be the same as my response then. If you're complaining about too many guitar solos, why are you here? <laughs> I, I, it's it's obviously the the dichotomy
1: inherent within me that I I love a guitar solo, but I also love a garage band, and occasion occasionally I do feel that this album could have done just with
0: someone saying lads, like you could have just stopped now. So I think you're right. Uh, I mean, it's it's clear that Dowd w- was whether he was chosen specifically because of the production work he had done on the Allman Brothers track albums, because again that. They're very noodley, uh and, and drawn out tracks. Um, so it, it, it's obvious that that's exactly what they're going for. But yes, there is a balance to be struck. And I'm not sure this album strikes it right. Yeah, I, I, I'd agree with that. Uh, and on that note the final track on on slide 3 have you ever loved a woman uh comes in at a a pedestrian 6 minutes and 51 seconds
1: so do you have any any idea why this might have been included in the album
0: i, I think eric might just have liked the song you know the sound of it
1: i mean the, the the song constantly refers to to someone wanting their best friend's wife i mean he's not even hiding it anymore no.
0: No, indeed. It's uh he's basically said, George, I'm in love with your missus, and I'm probably going to take her from you. So this is another cover, as he said, it was, you know, uh clearly chosen because it fits with the theme of the album. Not a great um, not a great deal to say about this song. Uh it was written by Billy Miles. Uh it was first recorded by a blues artist called Freddie King in 1960. It was actually the second version that that Clapton had put to record. The first being uh, as part of a, a, a live show with John Mayall and the Blues Breakers in 1965. Now I haven't heard that version, so yeah, I've not got I've not got anything else about this. It, it again, it's another perfectly serviceable blues track. Yeah, it it, it is like it's a, again,
1: it's a blues standard. It's done. It's done well. There's there's not a huge amount to
0: to add to it. Nope, indeed. And, and we now, that takes us on to Side 4. So the first, the opening track of, of Side 4 is a cover of Jimi Hendrix's Little Wing. So it was recorded actually shortly before Hendrix died. Uh, so they'd originally wanted to record it as a tribute to a living legend, but obviously it took on a, a greater significance after, after Hendrix's death. Uh, but I'm going to come out and say it, I do not like this version of the song. Thank you. It's uh, my my note, My
1: notes were, and I, I again, I will admit to a level of bias on it. The I, I adore Hendrix's Little Wing, so yep. I'm I was always going to be a little agi- a little guinea. It's not great. It doesn't
0: go anywhere. No, it's, uh, exactly. So I've put it's very plodding. Yeah, with, uh, without question. like it, it. It's a song played by. Extremely talented musicians that has none of the heart and soul of the original Hendrix version, and I think it's out of place on this album.
1: Yeah it it doesn't it doesn't bring anything, and it is it is a poor substitute for the original, and it, it doesn't yep. like what you want from a cover that isn't as as good as the original. What you want it to be is you want it to to do something different. It neither it's neither an improvement, nor does anything original or exciting with
0: it. Uh, moving on, uh, next track. It, it's too late. So this is the last cover on the album. Uh, nine, originally, uh, so it's written and originally performed in 1956 by Chuck Willis. Everyone uh, has covered this uh, this song, apparently, including uh, the Crickets, Roy Orbison, Otis Redding, and a collection of artists, including. The Grateful Dead's Jerry Garcia it's had a load of cover versions this song and obviously uh Derek and the Dominoes so th- I said earlier that I got to a point where I hit a bit of a wall and this was it uh I, I don't think this song fits on the album it sounds very 1950s rock and roll and it just
1: well it it is it's a I mean the original was a two two minute 30 R&B song that's that's what it was and they've They've slowed it down, doubled it out to like nearly five minutes. Yeah. The I think the the reason that it that it's included in the album is because again, it's all about an unrequited, unfulfilled love. That like it it, it fits with the theme of the album in the again, Clapton wants to bang Patty Boyd. Yeah. Like and and that that's essentially like he's gone through his big book of uh Black music. And gone, which songs can can I put on here to basically back up the things I've
0: written myself to say? I really, really want Patty Boyd. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, and as I said, th- this is the point that I that I started to um, look forward to the end of this album. I have to say,
1: yeah, yeah. So this is where the the blues heaviness of it becomes. Too much. Yes. The you need you need something different, and the last song, like so, I I wrote th- so Thorn Tree in the Garden, which we which we will come on to, which is the last song on the album. It's it has a completely different vibe, completely different sound, and I I wrote down it needs to be here or by Little Wing. You need something to break it yep. up. Um. Yep. Absolutely. And unfortunately, they they don't do that. They lob it on the end because they have got space on the recording um it, you really could have done with it here because yeah you you're really working hard at this at this stage of the album
0: and it's a long old album as well no i completely agree i completely agree you know and um I'm, I'm glad you feel the same because i was i was struggling by this point that said you know I, I think the last two tracks really really recover things uh emphatically so uh We're on to the penultimate track, and it is the title track uh, of the album. Layla, obviously. So this is uh, co-written with with Jim Gordon, who I didn't say when I mentioned at the start, but it was nice to see that Jim was taking time out from his busy job as Commissioner of Gotham City Police Department to to (laughs) record with Eric Clapton. (laughs) Sorry, it's a really cheap joke, but I had to
1: make it. So, um, do we need to talk about Jim Gordon? So, this is where we come across our next reprehensible character, allegedly. Please continue. So, the the famed piano exit, which we've referred to earlier, the um, most people will know it if they've seen Goodfellas as the Lufthansa, the aftermath of the Lufthansa scene within Goodfellas. Uh, yes. So, allegedly. And I am using that word deliberately because it has not been officially agreed upon that Rita Coolidge, um, she of the Bond song from Octopussy, All-Time High, wrote the piano exit and Jim Gordon stole it. Yes. Um that is my so they, they were partners at the time, I believe. So the um so at this, I think at this point. Risa Coolidge was not with Jim Gordon, but but he had heard he had heard it oh. when they were together, and she was trying to come up with a with a composition that was later released. And I don't recall the name of that song. I can't I cannot um we, we don't know either way, but I am going to put him in the potentially reprehensible characters in this story.
0: Yeah, indeed. I had the same note. And it's. I mean, we'll come to it, but it's a fantastic. It, so the the two movements of this song are entirely different, and personally, I much prefer the the piano uh, outro um, to the to the first part of the song. Yeah, it's
1: the the first the first part of the song is is great, obviously vox tastic <laughs> but the the piano exit is transcendent. It's. It's it it is a, a just an amazing piece of work and the how it all comes together and with almond slide underpinning it it's it's beautiful it's a beautiful piece of work. Um, I think probably at this point that we do need to speak about Patty Boyd because we've re- we've referred to her constantly throughout it. So Patty Boyd, was George Harrison's wife, she met him on the set of A Hard Day's Night, the uh, film. The relationship between the two had begun to had begun to fizzle out by this stage. Eric Clapton had become absolute. Well, as the entire album pretty much testifies to, had become. He was infatuated. Yes, he he was ensorcelled by her. <laughs> and George Harrison, from from most reports, wasn't really that hostile. <laughs> like, they still continue to be mates in that, um, which is all like
0: all a bit weird, really. So I am quoting Wikipedia here. So uh, whomever uh, edited this part of the Wikipedia entry for Layla and Other Love Songs, uh, it states that um, Harrison was losing interest in Boyd by this point. <laughs> That's the quote, and that's quite a brutal way of putting it. But there you go, not asked. <laughs> well, exactly. Um, yeah, in, indeed. And so, Patty Boyd, she was a model, uh, and she, you know, she was she was a very beautiful woman. Uh, I think it's fair to say. And she she went on to marry Clapton after uh, her and harrison divorced and they were together until 1989 they clapton and boyd separated in 89 i mean
1: obviously the as we've as we've mentioned before the name of the song was inspired from the the poem the story of layla and manjin yeah um and the thing that i was most surprised by because the you considering it is it is you almost universally considered clapton's signature song if you if you think of Clapton, this is the song that you pretty much go to, and yeah. and the riff is Dwayne Allman's.
0: Yeah, I'm so glad you said that because that makes me like it more. <laughs> uh, but yes, indeed, the, uh, the the claim is that is that Dwayne Allman was the first person to play the riff, and in fact, until Allman started playing this riff over the top, it was it was played very much as a pared down slow um, ballad. Um, in, in in a very similar way to the to the uh, acoustic version from Clapton unplugged, which I'm sure many people will be familiar with because it was very famous in the I think '92 that that got released. But yeah, the fact that Dwayne Allman came up with that riff is just it just makes me love this song even more. Like, and I, th- I think the reason that the song
1: the song works so well and basically brings up the album because you've got what's a very clapton clapton-esque song. And then it jumps into this entirely it entirely other song that's been sort of tacked onto the end of it. And as yeah. as we've as we've said like previously when discussing side four is that you're really having to work hard to, to get to the end of this album. Yeah. And then there's this piece of piece of music that completely transports you and it completely changes your opinion on the album because yep. it's right near the end, <laughs> and you've you've got you've got something that's that's changed that tone that you've had to been really working through, um, yeah, and and Layla, you know, no matter no matter what you think, it is established as a classic. It it it
0: simply is, and it, it is a it is a wonderful piece of work. Indeed, it is indeed it is uh completely agree so a couple of uh of other things to say about the the song rolling stone put it at number 27 on their uh list of the 500 greatest songs of all time uh the rock and roll hall of fame voted it as one of their 500 songs that shaped rock and roll so it's you know, when you talk about the legacy of this album, you really mean the legacy of this song. It is, it is, uh, well, seminal. I think is the word. Yeah, yeah. You can.
1: It, it has earned its place within the pantheon. If you want to be a bit wanky about it, which
0: obviously <laughs> yeah, I do. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, and I think I think we should leave the final word on the song itself to to Patty Boyd. Uh, so when she's talking about Clapton at the time he wrote this song, she said. I think he was amazingly raw at the time. He's such an incredible musician that he's able to put his emotions into music in such a way that the audience can get it instinctively. It goes right through you, and I think that speaks to exactly what you were just saying. Um, yeah, and that's that, that's written by the song's muse. So uh, who are we to disagree? So we move then on to, uh, and you've already you've already briefly mentioned it. The final track on the album Thorn Tree in the Garden. So this is the this is the only song on the album which is wholly written by Bobby Whitlock and he sings on it. Uh yeah and as you said it's just it's a really lovely palette cleanser to to end the album.
1: I mean it's clearly in the wrong place because
0: yes um
1: because Layla's Layla should close the album. Yes. Like the the way that song ends it it deserves it deserves to to be at the end particularly the piano part like thorn tree in the garden is a be- it's a, it's a lovely piece of music it's a lovely composition and it's it's be- beautifully lyrically but does like and unfortunately it on this on the album as a whole it sounds what it is which is like we had a bit of space so we just stuck it on the end
0: and it, it's it seems like a coda
1: yeah and it, Clearly, like Layla and the ending of that, and how epic it is. That's a, that's a perfect place to end the album. If you switch, if you switch the places, then the, I, my my belief is that the album would work slightly better. Um, but like, ignoring... So ign-
0: I'd go further.
1: Ignoring the position, the position of of the song on the album, it's it's lovely. It's it's a really nice piece of work.
0: I I agree. So I I'd, I'd go further than that about switching positions. I I think you can get rid of at least one of the the first two tracks on on side 4 if not both of them uh, and stick it there. As when we've already talked about how we how we both felt listening to those two tracks. If this were if this were to open side 4 and then Layla were to close side 4 just have two tracks on it, it'd be great for me. Yeah,
1: I I'd, I'd be perfectly happy with that. Um and it would it would give a a different a different feel to to the album and you you're not having to to work through the through the the very yeah. blues heavy uh elements of it.
0: Yeah, exactly. Uh, so just just finally on the track. D- so do you know what this track is about? Uh no, I don't. So I'm going to read you. So this is from the the same interview that I I read earlier um, that Bobby Whitlock gave to to Song Facts in 2004 uh, around this song. And and I'd like to read the quote in in full uh, because it's quite heartbreaking, actually. So Whitlock said, I was living at the plantation in the valley. You remember the shootout at the plantation in the Leon Russell song? I was living there with Indian Head Davis and Chuck Blackwell and Jimmy Constantine. There were about 13 of us in this house in Sherman Oaks in the valley. I had a little dog and a little cat. One guy told me to get rid of my dog and cat because there wasn't room. I took my cat out to Delaney's house in Hawthorne. And when I got back, my little dog was gone. This one guy in the house had taken my dog and done away with it. That was my only friend. This was the first time I'd been anywhere outside of of Macon, Georgia or the Memphis area. All of this was new to me. And I have an animal thing. I wanted to punch him out. And I thought, no, you can't do that. So I went to my bedroom and sat down. I was thinking about a snake in the grass and some other ideas. And I thought, he's the thorn tree in my garden. I had this beautiful garden built in my consciousness where I was safe and secure with my little dog and my cat. And there's this thorn tree. That would be the guy who had my little dog put away. I wrote the song that just came out of me. I hadn't even put it on paper and I went out of my bedroom and knocked on his door. I said, come here, I want to play you something. We sat down at the table in the kitchen and I played him that song. He said, wow, Bobby, that's beautiful. I said, you're the thorn tree. There's going to come a day when I have the opportunity to record this song and the whole world would know about it. You'll know what you did to me for the rest of your life. I didn't realize it was going to be go on Uh, on the end of one of the biggest selling records of all time that was the furthest thing from my mind i mean fucking hell (laughs) that's just heartbreaking he took his dog (laughs) exactly and and so okay I, i i've only read the quote we can all i think interpret what he meant by done away with it and, and so when he says I wanted to punch him out and I thought, no, you can't do that. Oh, that shows incredible restraint, in my opinion. Uh, so, yeah, a, a really, a really, a really lovely end to the album, but a really seemingly tragic tale behind the song. Uh, and that brings us to the end of of Layla and other love songs. So just a, a few notes on, on the album's legacy. As we've already said, when it first came out, it wasn't a commercial success. It wasn't a critical success either. For example, Ellie Sandler writing in the Saturday Review said the album is pointless and boring, a basket case of an album. Clapton has all but blown his musical credibility. Rolling Stone was a bit more positive, but in a very qualified way. They said the singing is always at least adequate. I mean, there's high praise indeed. Forget indulgences and filler, it is still one hell of an album, which is slightly more positive. There has been a, a reappraisal uh, since then, and I think it's, as you said, certainly the song, the title track, is, is regarded as Clapton's seminal work. It was inducted into the Grammy Hall of Fame in the year 2000. Uh, in 2003, Rolling Stone voted it as a number 117 in their uh, greatest 500 albums of all time list in terms of sales uh it, the album uh, has gone gold in canada denmark and in the uk uh it, it it's been certified platinum in the us and it's sold 1.7 million copies worldwide so you know we sit here over 50 years after its release and and, and clearly it's it's a significant album that sold a hell of a lot of copies but um as we said at the time, it, it, it wasn't particularly well regarded by the the, the record buying public or by critics. It was clearly the Vauxhall advert, uh just tipped it over <laughs> the top. Yeah, nothing to do with Scorsese. Nope, <laughs> everything to do with General Motors. Uh okay, so just and I don't think there'll be any particular dispute about this, but what for you, what's the best track on the album? It, as much as I love um Key to the Highway, it, it's Layla. It, it it's the best song on there. It? it it just is. Yeah, yeah, completely agree. Uh, so one thing I didn't say is that so, and you know me as someone who enjoys musical indulgence. Uh, there are apparently sixteen different guitar tracks, and that's something I'm very much on board with. Oh. So I com- I completely agree. Layla is, is the best track on the album. What's your um? And I'm not going to say worst. What's your least favorite track on the album? Little wing. Yeah, uh, we've already talked but yeah, 100% agree. So, uh so there we go. We we'll, we we'll, we we'll, we'll come back to scoring at the end, but um that's Layla and other love songs. Okay, so uh what we're going to do with these to save uh you guys having to listen to us talk for 2 hours nonstop, which no one wants quite frankly. We're going to split these clashes up into two episodes. So, obviously I've just taken us through Layla and next week, Kevin will take us through All Things Must Pass. So uh, I guess all that's left to do is just, uh, Kev, can you uh, just give people uh, an idea of how they can get in touch with us if they want to?
1: So if you want to get in touch with us, you can find us on Twitter at Clash Album. You can find us on Instagram at Clash Album. Or if you'd like to um, utilize the electronic mail you can send us an email at albumclash at gmail.com. So, you know, any comments, you know, anything you want to say about it or any suggestions for any future clashes, please um, please get involved.
0: Yeah, definitely. Please do. And um, obviously, uh, if you've liked what you've heard today, it's our very first episode. So subscribe. You, n- you want to find out how this clash goes, if nothing else. So listen to next week's show. Uh, leave a review, whichever platform it is you use to listen to podcasts means a great deal to us and uh, yeah thanks for listening really and um we shall see you next time so uh, yeah thanks very much see you now cheers thanks